0: all right mic up all of all of our listeners are gonna all three of them are gonna hear are gonna hear that. We're really good of a <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Ruf. Uh, welcome to Ruff, as everybody on campus calls it. Uh, we're a Reformed University Fellowship. We are a Christian organization on campus, um, and I am a pastor. I don't know if that's weird um, to say. Like, they're like, "Well, what does that even mean?" All it means is I went through a lot of rigorous study. I went through four years to get my master's, and then after that, you know, I... yeah. and then after that, I took like eight exams uh, in order to be to be ordained, so, you yep, yep, I can, <laughs> yep, I love how this yep, I can marry people, I can officiate weddings, so, and to be honest, and to be honest, that is one of my prayers, that I would be able to officiate some of y'all's weddings one day, Are there any no. steps? You <laughs> do you, okay, let's have a one-on-one about that. I don't know whether to laugh or unpack that. So, <laughs> <laughs> little <soon. laughs> So, uh, hey guys, I'm happy that you guys are here, um, especially, especially some of the freshmen who, it just takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of courage uh, to come to something like this, especially if there's like people that's been here a long time. So, I just want to thank you guys for your courage. Uh, thank you for your, your vulnerability. It does take vulnerability to like come into a space like this. Um, and it just takes a lot of strength. Um, I'm just really happy that you guys are here. I'm so, I'm so thankful and so privileged to have this, to have this opportunity to preach and, and to teach and to lead you guys. I'm, this is quite literally my, my like number one thing that I want to be doing in life is serving college students. So I love what I do, and I'm excited to share God's Word with you this, this evening. Um, but before we do, let's pray, um, and then I'm going to jump right in. And just a little, one clarification, most pastors, they'll read a long passage. I'm actually going to give you a point, and then we're going to talk about, and then I'm going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to explain it, So it's because it's breaking it up. All right, uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, thank you for the gifts of life and breath. I know it's hard to even say that sometimes. Life is hard. Um, it has us uh, tired, exhausted, and overburdened sometimes, Lord. And we can get caught up in our head and sometimes disconnect our head and our hearts. And it, and it just makes us feel disconnected and lonely and isolated, potentially depressed. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you would meet every student here this evening uh, with your word and, and with your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Lord, we ultimately need you. They don't need me. They don't need a talk. What they need is the living Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show up powerfully Uh, this evening, and that you would meet students exactly where they are, and that this would be a space to be in process. Father, would you go before us now? Would you give me your words to speak? Pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So a little bit of context in the book of John, but um, Jesus once asked a very important question. He said to the disciples, he said, who do the people say that I am? And in response, the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist, some others say that you're Elijah, and others even Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This response is really telling because it makes one thing particularly clear, and it is this. Going all the way back to the first century Jerusalem, all the way to the 21st century America, people have been wrestling with the identity of Jesus. In fact, the importance of answering this question cannot be overstated. It is important for all of us to ask this question during our lifetime. We have to take this Jesus at least somewhat seriously. We have to at least come up to this question and say, who is this? Was this a real person? So whether you've been a Christian ever since you can remember, or you're new to the whole Christianity thing, or if you have no idea where you're at, we are all coming and we're asking this question tonight. Who is Jesus? Said differently, I want you to ask this. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm sure that whenever I say that, maybe some answers come to your mind. But before we lean on our own limited understanding, or we simply adopt or believe what others have told us, I would like to challenge you this evening to at least consider what Jesus himself says about who he is. Let's just take Jesus at his word. Almost give yourself a clean canvas and just see what Jesus says about himself. But in order to fully comprehend and appreciate what Jesus is saying in the New Testament, specifically in the I am statements, we have to understand a little bit about how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. So whenever the people of Israel were in bondage and in slavery to the Egyptians, God, Yahweh heard their groanings and he heard their complaints. So he shows up to this guy named Moses in a burning bush and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to release my people. He goes, well, what? <laughs> Making sure you're paying attention. He goes, I I am not good with my words. <laughs> He's like, well, take Aaron with you. Right? Go to Pharaoh. And then, and then he said, Well, what 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 if they say, like, who sent me? Right? What should I say? And he said, Tell them I am sent you. The Hebrew word is comes, the Hebrew word actually is to be. And it means, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I am the self-existent one. I am not reliant upon anything, nor dependent upon anything. I am the creator. I am outside of space and time. I am the sustainer of all things that exist. Every cell in your body, I sustain them. God is immutable. He's unchangeable in his being and his character, and he's never lied, and he does not have any evil or badness in him. But don't miss the main point in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was scared to go to the king at the time. Pharaoh was the king. You come to somebody with that much power, you better have something on your mind. So the point in Exodus 3, whenever he reveals himself by saying, I am, I am who I will be, I'm the self-existent one, is that God is going to be present with Moses. God's very name, Yahweh, it's actually Yahweh. Yahweh is a clear reminder of his ultimate promise to his people which is that he will be present with his people. So in this vein, this semester, we are going to be studying the seven I am statements, right? So we have Yahweh revealing himself as the, the great I am. I am who I am, I'll be who I will be. And in the book of John, we have Jesus coming and he has seven of these I am statements. And he's making seven specific claims that shed light on who he is and what he came here to do. And tonight we're going to look at the first of those together. Let me pray quickly. Father, uh, would you just open our minds right now as we open up your word? Uh, feed, our, feed, us, feed us this evening with the bread of life. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So, uh, so back in, in Prattville, Alabama, when I was a youth pastor, Emily and I, uh, we had a favorite Mexican restaurant, um, and it was called Los Mayas. Um, and Los Mayas, right, we would go on special occasions, right? We have a child now, it's really hard to get out, but we would go and it would be like the full stop, right? Like we would go, we would get the salsa and the queso, the large queso, and um, Emily would usually get the fajitas, the, uh, yeah, the fajitas, and then I would get the fajita quesadilla, and I would also ask for queso on top of those. I love queso. If you haven't, if you haven't found out, and so um, and we would eat our fill while we're while we're eating. And you guys know the type of fool that you are after Mexican. Okay, <laughs> you are full, full. Okay, both t- both stomachs are full. Okay, and you're still like eating, you know, and, and like literally afterwards, you're like, like, what did I just do? <laughs> and so and so, of course, right. Whenever we get into our cars, where our belly's almost hurting. And we begin to, to get on the road. And then of course, right, what happens? You look to your right, you see our favorite ice cream place, right? And then and then all of a sudden you start to imagine like eating the ice cream. And just somehow, some way, there is now room. There's there's like more there's like more hunger. You found out that you have a third stomach. There's more there's more hunger. And so what do you do? You end up stopping and you get some ice cream. I imagine that this is kind of similar to what the people were feeling uh, surrounding Jesus whenever they experienced this. Because in the context of John chapter 6, this is right after Jesus just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And the text tells us they were seeking Jesus the next day. Why were they seeking him? Well, because they experienced this miracle. They experienced, they felt it, they touched it, they smelt it, they tasted it in such a way that just at the mere sight of Jesus, they started to feel hunger. Just like the ice cream shop, we just, just at the sight of it, it just made me feel more hungry, even though we just had our fill. But does Jesus give them more physical food or material provision? He certainly could have provided for them in that way again, but instead Jesus revealed to them what they were actually craving, which leads me to my first point. Jesus corrects our craving. Jesus corrects our craving. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 25, if you have your Bibles or if you have like a phone app, you guys can follow along. I think it would be helpful. It would be helpful. Here, I'll give you a second why. But yeah, it'd be helpful to follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Then they said to him, "'What must we do to be doing the works of God?' Jesus answered him, "'This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent.'" So they said to him, "'Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, "'He gave them bread from heaven to eat.'" Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The first thing we see is the crowd seeking Jesus, right? And whenever they find him, they say, when did you get here? How long have you been here? Such a random question, right? And we know contextually, like, because there was a boat still on the sea, and then one of the boats were gone. And so he's like, well, how did Jesus get all the way over here? Well, we know because it says that Jesus walked on water, but instead of even dealing with that miracle, he completely ignores the question, and then he, and then he questions their motives by stating this, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You know what this is like? This is like whenever we were kids and we used to hang out with that one kid who like had all the latest games and toys and technologies. He had the nicest pool with uh, the, the little slide and the diving board and the nicest house with the nicest parents and they always, they had the meals at the table and it was always the best food only because of what hanging out with them did for us. That's what it's like. It's like going over to that kid's house because of what was associated with them and what it actually did for us. We are, always, we are often so quick to sacrifice the person on the altar of our physical and material benefit for us rather than delighting in the person who's behind those things. We don't just do this as children, do we? I think we also do this today. I just think that we've gotten a lot better at hiding it. Maybe for some of us, we befriend someone who can listen to us emotionally, but as soon as they have needs, we begin to retreat or we begin to ghost because they're actually becoming a burden or work for us. Maybe for others of us, we befriend somebody who is clearly connected with people with influence or power, right? Especially in college. So we draw near and we raise our own reputation, not only in our own eyes, but also in the eyes of others, that gives us a sense of security or comfort or even pride. The hard truth is that we we do this with people and we don't only do it with people, we also do it with Jesus, don't we? We come to Jesus with these same selfish motives and expect him to do all the things that benefit us at no personal cost. For some of us, we come to God skeptical of his goodness because we prayed over and over and over again and we received no answer in return. We feel abandoned and neglected. And instead of leaning into the tension of a relationship with a living God, we convince ourselves that God is out to get us. He he does not ultimately want what's best for us. For others of us, we come to God with ultimatums. Heal my mom or I'm done with you. If you allow me to pass this test, right now I haven't studied a lick, but if you allow me to pass this test, I will begin to trust. Or maybe if you don't give me this job or this position or this raise, I can no longer trust that you're good. If you give me a girlfriend or this boyfriend or this girlfriend or whatever it have you, then I'll know that you're good. Then I can trust you whenever you fulfill my needs. God turns into this genie into the sky whose real job is ultimately to satisfy your needs. And when he doesn't, we give up on him too. We often come to God angry because he has not given us our fill. We expect him to give us what's ours, right? Or at least what we think is ours. And if we don't get it, then that's on God. That's not on us. We tried. We tried to come to God with our needs. And we felt like he wasn't there to hear them. Well, in verse 27, Jesus graciously reminds us not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, when Jesus reminds or tells the crowd and us not to work for the food that spoils, he is correcting their cravings and ours from a purely temporal and materialistic notion of the kingdom of God to an eternal spiritual notion of the kingdom of God. A great contextual example of this is the woman at the well. If you're not familiar, uh, just turn two chapters left or in your phone and go to chapter four. Um, And I'm going to start with verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw uh, water with, and the well is very deep. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank it from and drank from it himself, as did his sons, his livestock, and his livestock. "'Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks from the water that I give him "'will never be thirsty again. "'The water that I will give him "'will become in him a spring of water "'welling up to eternal life.' "'And the woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water "'so that I will not be thirsty "'and have to come here to draw more water.'" The woman immediately takes Jesus literally, right? and misunderstands him to mean that Jesus would provide water that would eliminate her her physically going and getting this water repeatedly. That's how she interprets this. But Jesus wasn't talking about a physical, temporal thirst. He was talking about an eternal, spiritual thirst that she was seeking to quench by her repeated attempts for love. And I know that because the continuation of the story is that she has five husbands. So Jesus is actually meeting her at her eternal spiritual thirst, not her physical one. Jesus is saying that your physical temporal solution for that deep thirst that you have to know me and to be known by me will never be quenched by a husband. That thirst was designed only for me and it was only de- de- uh, designed to be quenched by me. I'm the true living water. Do you see what he's doing? He's changing this very literalistic temporal physical reality and he's bringing it up here and saying you think you're thirsty but I know what you're really thirsty for he's correcting our craving now coming back to our passage Jesus is essentially saying the same thing not only to the crowds that he's preaching to in the synagogue but he's saying the same thing to us do not work for food that spoils but the food that endures to into eternal life Put differently, what is it that you are seeking in this temporal, materialistic world to quench a much deeper eternal spiritual hunger and thirst, ultimately to know and be fully known by your creator? Maybe for some, it's control. If we can project some sense of we have it all together by having our major figured out, by having a five-year plan right, graduating with a great job that has great benefits, and then we will get married and we'll have kids, never to have to worry about money again, then I will quench that hunger. Or maybe for others of us, it's approval. If I can get the approval of my mom, or if I can get the approval of my dad, then the thirst will be over. If I can get that teacher that I respect to accept of me, if I can get the validation from my mentor, my pastor, then I will quench it whatever it may be for you, Jesus actually meets us at this crossroads, like he does with the woman at the well. He meets us whenever we have this physical, materialistic desire, and he brings it up to a much bigger, deeper longing and thirst that is ultimately for him. That's why it's there. But first, he has to correct our craving. So again, I want to ask the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is the one who corrects our craving, but he's also the one who satisfies our deepest hunger and thirst. Point number two, Jesus satisfies our hunger. Read with me verses uh, 30 through 36, back in chapter 6. 30 through 36. Actually, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Does that sound familiar? Sir, give me this water. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. To better understand what's going on here, we have to understand the context. In chapter 6, verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue. He is preaching in the synagogue, right, during the time of Passover. And we also know that because at the beginning of the chapter, it tells us. So he's in the synagogue during Passover. Okay, if you're wondering, like, what is Passover? Passover is an Old Testament reality in, in, in Exodus chapter 12. And what happens there is after God shows his power, uh, to all the uh, Egyptian gods. There's, uh, there's 10 in specifically, and every single one of his, his miraculous powers were actually coming up against an Egyptian god. And after that happened, the last one was the death of a firstborn. And so what had to happen for the Israelites, not to, because judgment was coming, so what had to happen was a substitute. And so they took lambs and they cut the lamb, right, and and the blood, and they put it on the doorposts of the door. And then what, what he said was, judgment is coming regardless, right? And if you do these things, then I will pass over the Israelites because that blood will atone for the sin. And so God provides salvation for them through Moses by telling them to do this. So why is this important? Because Jesus is in the synagogue during the time of Passover. Every single year, ever since Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites, the Jewish people were to celebrate this. They were to celebrate the Passover to remember how God provided, how God provided a sacrifice. And so now I want you to imagine now Jesus is in the synagogue, right? On a Sunday during Passover. And it is very likely that in, in that same week, they've actually read this passage in Exodus 16, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, after they came out of bondage of slavery to the Egyptians, right, they were all in the wilderness and the people began to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Said, what did you bring us out here to die? We don't have any food. And what does God, and, and what does Moses do? He pleads to Yahweh, the great I am. And what does he do? He provides manna from heaven. He provides bread Or manna from heaven to feed them in the wilderness. This is the context in which Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He provided manna in the wilderness, but this was a manna that spoiled. Because they had one day that they would have to go and get the manna, and then if they tried to keep more than what they're supposed to, they would wake up and there'd be maggots all in it. So it was only for that day. And then before before the Sabbath, they would have to get two days worth, right? And then if if they did any more, any less, it wouldn't be good. So now Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life. In this context, the natural Jewish response would be, then what sign do you do, right? That in that context where he's speaking to a bunch of people in the synagogue, of course their, their, their response is gonna be, well, what sign do you do? right? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. You see how this is making sense now? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, he being Moses. The crowds would have understood Jesus is promising to provide something better. They would have had this in their mind. They just, they're in the synagogue. They would have just heard Exodus 16. So they would have been thinking about the manna that Yahweh provided for the people. And so they would understand like, whoa, 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 Jesus is promising for something much bigger and better. So he better be willing to pay out. He better be willing to display an even more dramatic miracle than Yahweh providing bread to those that were in the wilderness. And if this is what they mean, it is a a demand that Jesus would prove his messianic status. Because in Judaism, they were expecting one to come, a prophet like Moses to come and to provide bread. They were expecting this. So they wanted him to prove his messianic status by either duplicating it or or surpassing it. So you have to ask the question, how does Jesus respond? Well, again, Jesus responds by correcting their craving and ours by stating, truly, truly, I say to you, it it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus not only corrects their craving, but he satisfies their true hunger. It was not Moses who provided provision in the wilderness. It was Yahweh. It was not Moses who provided the Torah, where in Judaism, the Torah, the very words of God, were the food for the people. It was Yahweh who provided that. It was not Moses who provided salvation and deliverance from the Egyptians. It was Yahweh who did that. So as Jesus offers himself as the true bread, the bread of life, as stated in verse 35, he is declaring that he is the ultimate satisfier of all of our spiritual, emotional, and relational longings. It's a deeper hunger. And this promise to satisfy our deep hungers is pretty significant, isn't it? We have a lot of really deep hungers. And we often look to other things in this world to satisfy those deep hungers and longings and desires, and they ultimately promise us satisfaction. But correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of times they leave us more empty. I always say that like, whenever we take something that God maybe created as good and we make it and we take it to try to fulfill that deeper desire, it actually robs us of our humanity. It slowly puts us back into slavery. We're actually in the wilderness. We're not trusting and moving towards the promised land. We're returning back to slavery. Why do we remain in that abusive relationship? We have a deep appetite for love, even if that love is deeply dysfunctional. Why do we continue to return to our addictive behaviors? Well, because we have deep hurt and deep pain and a lot of emotional dysregulation that we long to be healed, even if we look for it in the wrong places sometimes. Why do we bury ourselves in our schoolwork, always trying to keep this appearance of being too busy? Well, we have a deep desire for approval and affirmation and acceptance from mere man and from others, even even if it's a false sense of it. Whatever it may be for you, I can't cover everything, but you know what your temptations are in your heart. We are all seeking to be filled and to find a deeper satisfaction. If we are all really honest with ourselves, if we just take a moment and be really honest with ourselves, we have a deeper longing that this world can't fulfill. We think it can, and we've tried, but yet we're left actually more hungry. We're left passing the ice cream shop again after a turkey dinner during Thanksgiving, one of the biggest dinners of our year probably, you're going to get hungry again. You're going to get hungry again. But Jesus isn't just talking about your physical hunger. He's talking about your deeper hunger and thirst that was actually created and put there by him. If we're completely honest, our response is very similar to both the woman and and the crowd, sir, give us this bread always. Sir, give us this water repeatedly. But still there's a misinterpretation. You think you have to get it repeatedly. You don't. You come and he is the one who satisfies. You come, you get true living water and true bread and he satisfies. There's There's not repeated returns. He is the one who fulfills it. He is, right, the God-shaped hole that we all have. Both of them are up, both of them are staying right here in the temporal and the materialistic. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to see that Jesus is pushing us to a spiritual, eternal mindset. He's trying to tell you something deep about who we are and our actual needs and where those actual hungers come from. And in the midst of this, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Right? That's not, that's not like the Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> you shall not hunger, and, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As humans, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we do have this deep hunger and longing for more than what the world can offer, which I've already said. And this is ultimately pointing to the reality that we have a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst That can only be quenched by the one who created it in the first place and the one who created those longings sent the true bread the one who knows that longing that you have he sent the true bread from heaven's storehouse just like he did with moses he opened up his storehouse and he fed the people but that was a temporary thing it was a mere shadow it was a mere shadow pointing to something watch i'll show you that it was a mere shadow moses was a messianic figure he was the mouthpiece of Yahweh. He was the leader of the people, right? So Moses was a messianic figure who led these people out of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. By the way, he walked on water, okay? We know it as a miracle where the water was parted, but that's another illustration of him walking on water. All of those things were mirror images to point to the one who would ultimately be the true Messiah, it would be the one who would ultimately walk on water. He would feed the 5,000 temporally, right? The feeding of the 5,000 was two, was like a chapter ago. He feeds them the temporal bread and he's doing that to actually point and say, you know how Moses fed, fed y'all and, you know, in the wilderness? I'm going to do that too to show you that I'm, I'm the second Moses. I'm the greater Moses. I'm the one that the whole Old Testament is, is pointing to, I'm the true messianic figure. I'm the second Moses. I've walked on water. I've provided manna. And now I'm calling you to partake in my very life. I'm the one that all those things pointed to. And guess what? All right, let's take it one step further, right? If Jesus is the one all things are pointing to, and this was like a microchasm of like the history of redemption, right? They were coming out of slavery. Well, Jesus also brings us out of slavery too, doesn't he? So they were in bondage and in slavery to the Egyptians. We are in bondage and enslaved to our sin. Jesus, he brings a new exodus. Jesus Christ brings the second exodus, the one where you're not coming out of a land, but you're coming out of slavery and bondage to our sin and to selfishness and even to death. So now think about that. What did did Moses say again? Moses said to him, I will be with you. What's Jesus' name? Emmanuel, God with us? He promised that he was always going to be with his people. And he has always been with his people. And guess what's coming again? Where were they heading? Where were the people heading? Right? They had to rely upon the provision through Moses, this messianic figure who provided quite literally, bread from the heavens that fed them, and they were heading to the promised land. So I want to give you hope in the midst of the struggle. I want to give you hope in the midst of heading to the promised land, because there's going to be times where you feel like God has abandoned you. But as we can see looking back on this microchasm of the, of the whole thing of redemption, God was there the whole time providing for them. And now he quite literally sent his one and only son to die upon the cross, the true bread, to enter into our reality, to take on this stuff, to take on this flesh, so that whoever believes and trusts in him shall never hunger and shall never thirst anymore, but shall receive salvation and deliverance from sin and death and slavery. As college students, you all know what it's like to feel weary. Y'all know what it's like to be in the hamster wheel of life, feeling like life is beating you down and wearing you out to the point of wanting to give up. Jesus offers hope for the weary. Let me read a couple of passages and we'll end here. In 37, uh, in 37 through 40, he provides hope for the weary. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out, Never. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I, and this is the will of him who sent me. I lost my spot. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the beautiful thing about what Jesus is saying here is he did not come to do his will. He came to do the will of the father. The father's will was that he would receive all that he has given him. You are a gift to Jesus. You are a gift to Jesus, and he died for you. He died for your sins. And in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You notice that he's, that now, now that we're, like, we're matching up with Moses and all this beautiful imagery and motif, and he's pointing us to the promised land, because he wants you to have hope in the midst of the wilderness, and our hope as Christians is we will be raised on the last day. Is judgment coming? Yes, it is, just as judgment was coming as well on the Egyptians, but God, Yahweh, provided a substitute in our place. Judgment is coming, but for Christians who believe and trust and turn to Jesus Christ, the true water and the true bread, the judgment has been placed upon him. He has paid the penalty. He has allowed us to be freed from the bondage of our sin and our slavery and the things that hold us from actually becoming most human, which is believing in Christ. We have a resurrection hope. So I wanna end with this question. I want you to think about this. Wherever you're at tonight, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, again, whether maybe you've just became a Christian or you're you're questioning um, or you don't know where you're at, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because the Jesus that reveals himself right here makes a very obvious claim to be Yahweh himself, to be God in the flesh that provided the way out of slavery and being delivered into freedom. Come to Jesus, the true bread and the true living water, and your hunger and your thirst will be finally quenched and believe, for he is good. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for providing living water that quenches the deep thirst that we have. And thank you so much for providing the true bread from the storehouses of heaven where Jesus came down from perfect unity with you and he took on flesh and he lived the life that we couldn't. He obeyed all the way to the point of the cross and to death and being separated from you so that we never have to experience that. But it doesn't end there. He was raised from the dead, and we do not worship a God who is dead. We worship a God who has been raised bodily from the grave. And he is even now interceding for people in this room to the Father, because that's his divine right. That's his place. He earned it. He paid for it. Lord, I pray that you would stir hearts by the power of your grace. If it was up to my mere words and my stumbling, might as well just talk to a wall. But Lord, you promised to fill your words with life and hope. We look to Jesus and we pray to thank you. We love you and we pray this all in the strong name of Christ. Amen. All right, if you would, please stand. We'll finish uh, with a song.